This is SQPN, the StarQuest Production Network, leading the way. I'm a doctor. I've lived for over 2,000 years. I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Shush. Welcome to The Secrets of Doctor Who. I'm Father Audrey. Record scratch! Nothing says stop everything like the sound of obsolete technology malfunctioning. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who. (laughs) Yes, uh... (laughs) We're gone back to the beginning. This is where we will discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the topic of our very first episode, of Secrets of Doctor Who number one. We've gone back to look at it again. It's called Deep Breath. It is the 12th Doctor's debut. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going, Dom? Very well, thanks. And Jimmy Aiken. Howdy, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, be sure to follow The Secrets of Doctor Who in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, your favorite podcast app, or at the SQPN YouTube channels, youtube.com slash starquestmedia, where you should also be sure to hit the bell to get notifications. Before we get started, I want to tell you about another show on StarQuest that you're sure to enjoy called Let's Science. Every other week, you're going to get a nice a 15 to 20 minute or so episode where Lindsay, Caroline, and Lino will talk about some fun, cool aspect of science and coming at it from their distinctly Catholic point of view. You check it out wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash science. So, gentlemen, we have gone back to the beginning, is uh, as they say. and It's, uh, uh, it's deja yeah. vu all over again. <laughs> That's right. It's uh, so that we're at our 271st episode, this one, and wow. uh, back in 2014, we had our very first episode where it was uh, Father Roderick was the host then, and uh, it was the, the three of us plus mm-hmm. Stephanie uh, yep. Zimmer who had joined us mm-hmm. at the time. And uh, so we're back. <laughs> We've crossed our own timeline. I know, exactly. I know. It's it's very dangerous. So uh, let, uh, let's, without further ado and dwelling on it uh, let's uh, jump right into this episode jimmy can you give us a recap of what happens in this episode fresh out of his regeneration from being matt smith the doctor and clara arrive in victorian era london in the tardis the tardis is stuck inside the throat of a giant dinosaur but once the dinosaur spits them out they meet the paternoster gang and the gang tries to care for the doctor while he's experiencing post-regeneration madness Eventually, the doctor sneaks out, and just as he's promising the dinosaur he will get it back to its own time, it spontaneously combusts and dies. This leads the doctor and the gang to investigate recent cases of spontaneous human combustion, and eventually the doctor and Clara are lured to a restaurant that turns out to be built over a spaceship that has been buried since dinosaur times. The ship is run by clockwork robots that have been replacing their parts with organs from human victims, and then incinerating the remains to keep themselves from being discovered. The head droid is convinced that he's headed for the promised land, but the doctor says that's just a fantasy. It is heavily implied that, to save the day, the doctor kills the head droid by throwing him out of a balloon made with human skin and impaling him across the top of the cross on Big Ben. Through all this, Clara has been having a lot of trouble adjusting to the fact that the Doctor is now Peter Capaldi, and by the end of the episode, she's ready to walk out and leave him. But a phone call from Matt Smith convinces her to stay with the new Doctor and help him. Finally, we cut to the Promised Land, where the head droid is waking up. We meet Missy for the first time, and she welcomes the droid to heaven. The end. So, uh, my first question is, how many alien spaceships are buried under London? Because, <laughs> by my count, this is at least, like, four or five. I mean, it's probably even more than that if, when you count Classic Who. There are a lot of alien spaceships buried well, under the city. You didn't know that London was a was an ancient spaceship parking spot. <laughs> Apparently. <Yeah. laughs> so, I mean, it, it, you know, joking aside, 
This is a trope that uh, the writers have gone back to again and again, and uh, so they've gone back to it with, uh, with this one. Yeah, they have more. They have more uh, crashed spaceship underneath London than the entire desert Southwest does here in America. Yeah, exactly. I would think Roswell for would have more. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, one of the things that that looking at this beginning of the Twelfth Doctor era is. The big question that Moffat, I think, addresses or tries to address, especially with Capaldi's first season, is the am I a good man question. And that's sort of this question that's going to dog him through the season. Um, in fact, I think he even asks that at some point. And it's kind of... Yeah, he does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of sets him apart from Matt Smith, David Tennant, you know, those doctors. Um, there's this question of... Who you know? Am I good? Yeah, and I think that's a useless question um, from a from a series perspective. Of course, the doctor is a good man. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, he may be rough around the edges or something in any given incarnation, but of course, he is a good man. And it don't waste my time as a viewer with navel gazing of that type. Well, it's it's part of the I think the bigger thing that Moffat was going for with Capaldi's Doctor uh, mm-hmm. is a very different character than what we had seen. Um, since, well, since the ninth doctor, I mean, the ninth doctor had many of the similar traits, but you know, the 10th and the 11th were both, you know, your good buddy, your boyfriend, your, you know, the guy you want to hang out with, they're manic. And now we've got an older character. We've got, you know, much more grouchy character, although that does get tapered, tempered somewhat through his run. Mm-hmm. Um, but he does start out much more aggressive, much more angry, uh, with the attack eyebrows and stuff like that. So, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I I I'm not a fan of this whole thing. Um this is to me a I don't mind having a doctor. So every doctor, every new doctor is cast as a reaction to the previous one. It's like what did we have about the previous one that we liked and that we didn't like or that we need to change to keep the show feeling different. Mm-hmm. So we're not just headed in the same direction all the time. And Moffat is sensitive to the need to change direction. He did that conspicuously over his seasons in Doctor Who. Like one season, he had everything be two-parters, and then he would deliberately throw it. every. This season, everything's going to be one-parters, and he would deliberately shift it up like that. So this show doesn't always feel the same. And that's good. And that applies to the Doctor, too. And occasionally... If you've had, you know, a run of a couple of your good boyfriend, although you're it's really more like your good, supremely arrogant boyfriend um, doctors, then you want something in the other direction. And so going older with the casting choice is fine. Going more prickly or alien is fine. Tom Baker is the example of that happening and it working. Oh, yeah. Tom Baker was supremely alien and he was supremely successful as the doctor. And I think that's kind of what Moffat was trying to do in casting and writing Peter Capaldi the way he did. But to me, it comes off like not like Tom Baker's fourth doctor, but like Colin Baker's sixth doctor, only less incompetent. Mm. The original plan for Colin Baker's sixth doctor was to introduce him and have him be very abrasive and then make him lovable over time. And that's always a very risky writing strategy. And it didn't work very much there. And I, it, it's less incompetently done here. But just notice the similarities between uh, this beginning, this episode, and the twin dilemma, which was <laughs> the, the Sixth Doctor's introductory episode. Now, the plot isn't the same in that it's not a dilemma that involves twins, but thematically, in that episode, the Sixth Doctor tried to choke Perry to death. Mm. And in this episode, when he and Clara are in mortal peril, he takes the sonic screwdriver and leaves her locked in with death dealing androids and and she's she's she is you know begging him to free her and take her with her and he says no it would take too long and she says at least leave me the sonic and he says i might need it and he just walks off Mm. and this is among other things he's done like when he realizes that the androids are using human parts to to replace themselves 
He like takes a face off of one of the droids, a human face, and is telling Clara this is a face, and he puts it over her face before she realizes it is a literal human face that he's pressing on her face. And she has a disgusted reaction, as anyone would. And then we've got this enormous human skin balloon, Mm. which is just way too horrific for, you know, family tea time television. And in this, the doctor comes off bad. Clara comes off bad, like just like Perry. She's constantly whining about stuff in this episode. Um, so I don't think this is as bad as the twin dilemma, but it has a lot of the same emotional resonances because they're trying to do a similar prickly doctor arc beginning. And I find this whole thing a downer. Mm -hmm. You get to the, you get to the end of it and you have this non-triumphant triumph, Mm. which is just depressing. And it's only at the last minute after a phone call from Matt Smith that Clara kind of decides to stick it out with the doctor. Yeah. Well, you're not in a good place. This and then I'll shut up. You're not in a good. You're not in a good place if your audience surrogate character only barely tolerates your main character and decides to stick with it. You know, it's it's interesting. I I went back and listened to the first uh, about ten minutes of our first time running through this uh, that episode that Dom played the little bit the snippet from the start. Oh, I didn't get that far. Yeah. Well, I I just listened to you know our. Uh, what we thought of the episode at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of times, you know, Jimmy, you and I, you know, we said, oh, yeah, you know, when we saw this episode way back when we didn't like it. Now we like it a little more. You know, we, we, we can appreciate it a bit more. This episode is the exact opposite. I think we actually mm-hmm. rated it fairly highly. I think most of us were somewhere in the six to eight range. Mm-hmm. It's gone down. You know, after this watch, I, I was like, oh, I can't believe we even rated them that highly. Maybe, you know, maybe we're becoming more sophisticated because we've been doing this well, for seven, eight years now. <laughs> or we don't want to have we don't want to have your very first episode of a brand new podcast be a terrible review. <laughs> right. I, I, that might be part of it. I think part of it, too, was, you know, it, it, and, and further rewatches, the, the flaws of the episode come out much more. Well, I think it's also partly because there's a lot, of, you know, a lot more Peter Capaldi episodes that are much better in comparison. Yeah. So. It, it improves, especially in the second season of the of uh, Capaldi. It gets a lot and, better, and so in comparison, he's like, "Oh yeah, this is not all that good compared and, to those." And and we know where Missy is going, and we look forward to it. Right, right. <laughs> well, I look forward to Missy. I'm not a fan of the whole heaven cold water. No, thing. no, no. But just Missy in general. Just Missy yeah. in general. So and and a, there's a good point that you make that Jimmy uh, that I wanted to expand on, which is. The plot of this is almost inconsequential to the to the you know from a writer's perspective. The plot is mm-hmm. just a vehicle for this interpersonal prickliness between the Doctor and Clara, and Clara trying to adapt to it's no longer fun, quirky Matt Smith, who I subconsciously think of as my Doctor boyfriend, and and now and the Doctor is dealing with I'm no longer young, fun, quirky Matt Smith, but I'm now. This older guy who's got this face that I recognize, and I'm upset, and I'm Scottish, and all this other stuff, yeah. and and that's all seems to be the most important aspect, and the and the story is set up sort of just inconsequential, and it kind of feels that it, way. It it also doesn't hang together mm-hmm. as a story. I mean, we've we've got the dinosaur is the first thing driving the story, and then poof, it's gone, spontaneous combustion. Which, by the way, we talked about in episode 149 of Mysterious World, yeah. <laughs> so you can check that out if you want to know what's going on with spontaneous combustion. But the dinosaur is suddenly gone, and that leads us very briefly to a, uh, to a plot involving spontaneous combustion. And we know the droids are responsible for that, but they don't, that doesn't go anywhere as a plot. Mm. That's just a connecting bridge, because the thing that really gets them to the restaurant, which is the next major plot point is an ad that's been put in the newspaper by Missy, although we don't know it's Missy right now. And so, okay, the so the overall plot is, in terms of the agency of the characters, is the Doctor and Clara are accidentally brought to London. They accidentally bring a dinosaur with them. The dinosaur is killed. 
and then they follow an advertisement to a restaurant where they meet the villains and the doctor kills one of them. Mm -hmm. That's the pieces of your mystery are not hanging together here. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, This is you're just jumping around and the 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 newspaper advertisement is a deus ex machina to prevent you from having to write an investigation subplot where they find the restaurant. Right. Right. Yeah. You just, we, they would take too long and take away from the other stuff. That would have been a whole, you know, minutes that they wanted to spend on doing the other stuff. Well, and this is so slow is in, in terms of modern who pacing, this is almost twice as long as a normal who yes. episode. And it feels like it. And there's a lot of stuff they could have cut out that there would have been a better episode for it. It absolutely <laughs> right. would have been a better episode for it. Um, it just, like, like I said, it just, it felt like it jumped around so much. You don't know what's going on half well, the time. For example, the scene in the alley with the uh, with the homeless man, where the doctor just goes on and on and on, and there are some good lines in there. Like that's where we get the attack eyebrows, and uh, I'm Scottish, I can complain about things. I mean, those there's some good funny lines in there, and I feel like Moffat didn't he loved those lines so much he didn't want to cut them out, and so he kept this long extended scene. Yeah, there is Moffat is doing interesting things on the dialogue level in this. And I think that I understand why he likes this, and I think it's clever what he's doing, but that doesn't mean it made it a better episode. Yeah. For example, there is a there's a scene early on where Clara talks to Madame Vastra, who is wearing her veil, mm-hmm. and we have this long conversation about why are you wearing this veil, and and Madame Vastra compares, says, in essence, it's to be accepted um you know by human society and and then she tries to turn that around into some kind of virtue signaling but i wear it not to really get acceptance but as a judgment on these judgmental people something like that yep. and it's okay that's just stupid you know you're you're wearing it to be accepted don't mm-hmm. try to turn it around in virtue signal it's okay to do exactly what you're saying is okay to do which is present yourself in a way that works for you in social interactions. And she then implies, she makes this analogy with the doctor's incarnations are like a veil. And Matt Smith was a veil, and then the veil slipped in the moment of crisis, and now you've got Peter Capaldi. And, okay, this is all very interesting and philosophical and has a little bit of truth in it, maybe, but is being badly executed. But it's just Stephen Moffat doing clever, philosophically-oriented dialogue. Right. And he and he does similar things later on, some of which are I mean, some of which are clever, like when the uh, the doctor is confronting the head robot at the end, he you know, the robot has this partial human face on and the doctor says to him, he is talking, he's making this ship of Theseus analogy about you replace the parts of something over and over again. Eventually, is it the same thing? And he says, of course not. You, for example, you probably don't even remember where you got that face, mm. which is self-referential since he's just been talking earlier in the episode about how he can't remember where he got his face. Right. right. And it's like, okay, I see what you did there, Stephen Moffat. Yeah, that was clever. And this time you didn't make me sit through a minute of dialogue to get that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there are. Uh, yeah, there, there's so that that's a, a point that will come back later in. Uh, the next season, season nine, the whole idea of the do- why the doctor has the same face as, and we'll find, you know, we'll recall the from the fires of Pomp- uh, Pompeii, mm-hmm. uh, a tenth doctor story, and he has the face of the Roman Cicelius. Was it was it something like that? Yeah, it's also the same face as a guy in the early twenty first century on a Torchwood special called Children of Earth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right, and so. You know, obviously both roles that Peter Capaldi played previously uh, in the Doctor Who universe. And uh, I, sure, <laughs> like, yeah. is, is he the fir- is he the first Doctor to have previously guest starred in an episode? No, no. Uh, Six Doctor, we saw do that. Yeah. Type, um, uh, you know, he was in uh, a fifth Doctor story, wasn't it? Yeah, he was he was uh, he was a guard. Yeah, he was like the head guard. And he got to, he says, if you want to get a job as Doctor Who, shoot your predecessor. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so, yeah. It, it, I mean, it's interesting and all, but uh, 
it feels like a, a bit of a stretch there. So a couple other things I, I was thinking of with this. So the, why is the T-Rex so massive? <laughs> like this thing is <laughs> incredibly huge. It is too big. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I suppose in order to be able to swallow a, a TARDIS, it needs to be much larger than a, a real T-Rex would have been. I think they never actually identify it as a T-Rex. I could be wrong about that, but I was listening and I, I no. keep remembering them referring to it as a giant dinosaur, but not not specifying the species. Right. Exactly. Also, the T-Rex arms look a little bit big on it for actual <laughs> T-Rex yeah. arms. I think it has more fingers than T-Rexes do. So I think the idea is maybe that it's meant to be a dinosaur that's suggestive of a T-Rex, but we don't really know what it is, so we can make up anything we want about it. Right, right. Sure. And uh, the other thing I was thinking of was that this is Moffat's first regeneration, not regeneration madness, because he had, of course, the beginning of Matt, Matt Smith, but the first time that he wrote the end of a doctor's time um, mm-hmm. in, yep. to go into this one. So that was... Kind of interesting, although that that's more has to do with the previous episode that we've already talked about. What what I did find interesting. So, in addition to comparing this to the to the to the twin dilemma, um, I also found myself regularly thinking back and comparing it to the eleventh hour, mm-hmm. which was Matt Smith's introduction, and how much more fun that was than this. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you got the regeneration madness over in like one opening montage. Where he he and you know he has it's the cooking montage with little Amy mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. where they end up with the fish custard and 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 after that he's more or less settled. I mean he's still got a little going on, but he's more or less settled. He's not mad through the whole episode. And then we have this fun romp with you know Amy. Uh, suddenly she's older and she's a police officer and knows she's a kissogram and there's patient zero and mm-hmm. or prisoner zero. And there's the um, Rory and Rory and all the hospital patients that are and this identity guessing game and the Atraxi come back and the doctor gives them this get off my lawn speech. And it's it's just it's a fun romp as opposed to this, which is depressing. And they even have like at one point, Clara is it's a sad my notes say energetic fun romp and then sad, creepy, depressing. Clara school hallucination because at one <laughs> mm-hmm. point Clara is out of the blue having a hallucination a nightmare about teaching school right right and the uh, Courtney that's the really annoying student that she's going to have that yep. we'll will encounter again well and that's a the big difference between those two is Amy and Rory were new companions we've got this holdover companion and it and she's unused to the doctor changing and wants him to change back and isn't accepting this old man instead of the young man. And I think that's, it, she I think that's one of the things really that pulls it down. Bad. Yeah. Yeah. She is. She's this ageist, you know, <laughs> look, your friend just died. Also you had, I mean, he like, you saw him age a thousand years. He is younger than the last time you saw him <laughs> right. by a lot. <laughs> right. Um, so you've just seen if someone you care about, I understand there may be if you were attracted to someone and suddenly they're not a an option anymore. That would be disturbing. But these are the kinds you don't say of kinds of things you don't say with your outside voice. Yeah. <laughs> right. You, right. You've got a friend who is in trouble and needs care. That takes priority over over this other stuff. So yeah. you don't just moan about, oh, moan about losing a boyfriend who wasn't even really your boyfriend, and you wouldn't even admit he was your boyfriend in the first place. Right. And that, right. you know, that's when I didn't like most of the Paternoster gang in this. I, I mean, obviously, Strax was awesome as Strax He's is. always fun. He's yeah. all, but, he always is. Um yeah. That is one thing I like about that conversation between Vastra and, and Clara, where she basically calls her out on it. You know, she does. You, yeah. She you know, basically says, you know, you, you're not you're not seeing him. And of course, that's a, a theme that goes throughout the episode. You know, see him. And there's at the end there where, you know, you where the doctor says that you don't even see me. You don't you, you look at me and see me, you know, even though the face has changed and everything. Um, so that's one thing I did like about it. But, you know, one, one thing I was thinking as watching this was comparison of, of this to Rose, you know, the first episode of New Who. Mm-hmm. 
where, of course, that focus of that episode was introducing the doctor, introducing Rose, introducing, you know, the characters. And I think this would have been a much more successful episode if they would have focused on introducing the new character that is the new doctor and kept the focus on that instead of all this other stuff that's running around they did and made the it, the plot with the, the, the droids even more secondary than it was, you know. I wonder... I wonder if Regeneration Madness as a part of the lore is in fact a flaw in the show because it, you know, you've got this new character essentially that you want your audience to connect with and like, and they're behaving unlike they will eventually behave. They're uh, behaving in these strange, weird ways that is creates a perhaps a bad first impression. Well, I don't think it always does create a bad first impression. Um, But I, and I recognize the point. Um, I think if you had every doctor immediately just have his full-blown normal personality, it would come off as not a dramatic enough change, by Mm -hmm. which I mean, it's like, wait, there was this actor here we just really liked, and now there's this new guy who's totally different. And you haven't sufficiently acknowledged the passing of the previous guy. Mm-hmm. I want, I would feel, I could see fans feeling unfulfilled by that. It's kind of like you're disrespecting the previous actor if the new one walks out of the gate fully formed. I think it can make sense to have um, a bit of, you know, regeneration trauma. Mm-hmm to mark the passing of the previous incarnation and make it feel like this is a, you know, um, make this feel emotionally real. I mean, you have to, unless you're in a six doctor firing situation, you want to build up the passing of the previous doctor. You know, you want it, his, his regeneration story to be momentous. And if it's momentous, it shouldn't all just be instantly cured and everything is totally different now. You you want that transition period where he's still wearing the old clothes and he's still kind of got elements of the previous personality and he's confused and he's still injured mm-hmm. physically in some way from the trauma he went through that caused the regeneration. And so I think it, it makes sense to have some of this, just don't overdo it. Right, right, right. Just you no, know, do a whole episode of it or more. Some t- in, in in some cases, but like you said, with the eleventh Doctor, get it over with early and then move on. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think with, with the tenth Doctor, it wasn't even even that dramatic. I mean, there was a bit of it. Like, well, a he scene laid in or bed two. for the whole episode. Yeah, until the very end, until he got the tea. Right, right. That's true. That's true. Because there was the whole issue of they couldn't hear uh, the the translation of the TARDIS because the doctor was sick. Sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Oh, yeah. I guess I didn't think of that as as the madness, like the acting out sort of bit, but more of just physical mm-hmm. debilitation. But okay. And that's yeah. that's closer to like the fifth doctor that he was his regeneration yeah. was into the fifth doctor was difficult, and so he was. He was sick, you know, he was in the zero G room and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, um and 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 also Peter Davison being an actual good professional actor <laughs> did a really good job delivering lines of previous doctors catchphrases in the previous doctors yep. with with the previous doctors attitude. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Yep. yep. Um one thing I, w- I thought was funny when they get lured to the restaurant, they they encounter each other there, and there's that classic misunderstanding. I thought you called me, no, no, you called me, and, and so uh, at one point they say, "Oh, you'd have to be an egomaniac, needy game player sort of person to place that kind of ad to to lure the hmm. other person to the restaurant." And they both think they're talking about each other, but I think it's funny because it turns out we'll find out they're actually talking about Missy, the master, who yeah. is an egomaniac, nerdy needy game player sort of personality. <laughs> so I, I, I have to tip my hat to Moffat on that one. That was good. That was good. Mm-hmm. There's also a line in that where even though it, it doesn't make the characters look the greatest, it is funny where the doctor and Clara are talking about the egomania of a person that would place an ad like this. And the doctor has implied it's Clara who's the egomaniac that placed it. And and um, she is getting angry at that, and he 
says, look, we need to focus on this other thing right now, not your egomania. And there are other, this other crisis is more important than your egomania. And she slams her fist on the table and says, nothing is more important than my egomania, which, which is a great line. Yes. You will never mention that again. She says, <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. So, and then they go, to- an, a, an, another great line yep. is when they've, they've called the Paternoster gang has called the police mm-hmm. to come to the restaurant. And Clara is, talks to the doctor and says, they called the police. Why, sh- why don't we do that? We should start doing that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and then the doctor turns to the robots and says, destroy us if you will. They're still going to close your restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is good. That is good. So they, he, uh, he also at one yeah. point does an inverse Darth Vader on the head droid and says, there's more human in you than machine now. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> uh, well, and that turns out that the ship, the, the alien spaceship and the automatons on it, are the, it's the sister ship to the SS Pompadour, which we recall mm-hmm. from, oh, gosh, I forgot to write down the title. Girl, episode, girl in the Fireplace. Girl in the Fire, thank you, Girl in the Fireplace, yeah. which is a... Russell T. Davies era episode, but it was written by Stephen Moffat. So Moffat once again, very very early. It was I think it was uh, his first season, wasn't it? Uh, uh, of uh, uh, the tenth Doctor. Yeah, it was oh, the tenth Doctor's doctor, first yes. season. Yes, and it was uh, it was not Moffat's first Doctor Who episode, but it was because that was the um, the the ninth Doctor story with the uh, yeah, the Are you my hollow child. Yes, yep. um, it, but so we have. I just don't think it works successfully. As the as the girl in the fireplace one did, I mean, which itself had had issues, but um, mm-hmm. it it seemed kind of weird to kind of mind that, like, to go back to that with for this trope again. I didn't. I it kind of it I, seemed I like a weird if, choice. I wonder if Stephen Moffat wanted that, was hoping that the callback would be stronger than it was. You know, I was, yeah. I, was I just wonder if it was something as simple as that as he wanted because he wanted to have this continual. I can't remember. I can't remember. It seems familiar. It looked. You know, the face looks familiar. And I just I wonder if he wanted that that stronger callback, um, and it like you said, yeah, it, it didn't work as well. And this was the the Marie Antoinette is was this ship, right, right, right. Um, which that's a uh, interesting choice to have the Marie Antoinette and the Madame de Pompadour <laughs> sister uh-huh. ships. Uh, they would not get along in the same room. Uh, so the, the there's another scene where Clara is after the Doctor has abandoned her. And she's trying to pretend to be an automaton, and not successfully. They've surrounded her. He's about to. Uh, he's trying. He's about to torture her for information about the doctor. The the automaton is, and she has this speech. You know that if the doctor is still the same person, then he's got my back, and I'll hold out my hand behind me, and he'll be there right behind me at my back. And he is, and takes her hand, and I'm like, that seems a really weird. I don't know. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of really weird stuff in this. There, like in that same speech where she is talking to the uh, to the head robot who's going to torture her. He, I mean, he initially he starts by saying, "Tell us where the doctor has gone, or we're going to kill you." And she then uses that as a premise to stymie the droid by saying, "Okay, I'm not going to tell you, um, and if you kill me, you won't get the information." So let's negotiate. Never start with your ultimate sanction because you have nowhere to go mm-hmm. but backwards then. Mm-hmm. And he says, okay, we're going to like burn you with a flame then. Yeah. And, 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 and she tries to negotiate her way out of this. And there's a legitimate insight here of never negotiate by starting with your ultimate, with your ult, with where you're willing to go in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed. That's a lousy negotiating tactic. But, the speech she gives doesn't really end up going anywhere. So she has this one inc- incisive thought, but then they have to cut the Gordian knot by bringing something in from out of left field because there's no way she ultimately can turn this situation to her advantage just by negotiating. Right. And right. the problem with this, of course, is the, the, the droids can sit there and say, <laughs> okay, fine, you're done. <laughs> if we aren't going to get information on you, we don't need you, and that's right. it. Game over. We'll go find. We'll go find out. Uh, you know, another way. It's. It's not like this is key to their he, plans. It's just would yeah. be inconvenient for the doctor to be running around. He, he's probably within a mile of here at this point. <laughs> yep. Right. Right. 
so we get to this 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 moment where the doctor and the like it's called the half face man uh, um, in in the script. They're in the restaurant escape pod with the human skin balloon above it because you know for the horror of, of it, I suppose. And they ha- they're having this back and forth. Yeah, hum- human skin balloon is not fun regeneration romp. No, no, <laughs> certainly not. Yeah, that's gone very dark. And so the, the they have they confront there's this confrontation. The doctor basically says, you know, to the automaton, you have to you have to kill yourself, jump out of the balloon to your to your destruction, or I have to kill you, throw you out. And oh, and by the way, notice we have another single critical failure point plot resolution. Yep, right. You kill the kill this droid. All the rest of them deactivate right. because lazy writing. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. he's the control node, and we have control nodes in in uh, Doctor Who. And uh, <laughs> the Doctor says, you know, I can't kill, and the robot can't self-destruct, and they eventually acknowledge that one of them is lying, and then we cut, and we see the robot man destroyed, impaled, as you mentioned. and On a cross on the top of Big Ben. Right. Yep. Uh, we don't see who it is, and we're, we need to speculate who did it. And oh, the doctor killed. Except, it's a robot. He didn't kill yeah, anybody. Well, <laughs> it's it's a robot that's more man than machine and goes to heaven. Well, again, it's a ship of Theseus thing. If you replace all the robot parts with human body parts, is it still a robot? I mean, well, it, that's that's uh, that's what they're playing with here. Exactly. It's not just a robot. It's mm-hmm. it's it's kind of an inverse Cyberman. I guess, although the, I mean, he still has the mechanical. I guess you can call it brain, if you will, yeah. because you can see the the gears and everything up in in the half that's open. Yeah, but. we've we've sort of confronted this a bit in other shows like Card and, um, you know, yeah, but Star this, Trek Next but Gen. But here it's biological. This, mm-hmm. I mean, Data is a toaster, and Picard is now a toaster, but this guy is only part toaster. Yep, okay. that most of him is biological. Yeah. And if the right parts of him are biological, he could be understood as a living, very disfigured human being. The brain, do you mean? Yeah, at least a substantial chunk of the brain. Hmm. You don't because yeah. you don't need a whole brain to be a human. Right. Right. Then you just when so he's say imposed his AI programming on the human brain, that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose. <laughs> I. It 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 didn't have the impact on me that it was supposed to because I'm like, but he just it's a robot. <laughs> like he just threw well, they, a robot they, with fleshy parts out the out the door. Yeah, I mean, basically, all you see that that's human is the outside. Right. It's still got a you know the armature of a of a robot. I, I guess. Uh, in in any case, if he ends up in heaven, which that's even not really heaven, so it's it no. he's downloaded as we'll find out later. Missyville. Oh, Miss. Yeah, Miss in the promised land. Um. So yeah, and as you mentioned, it saves Clara and the Paternoster gang who had showed up to do battle, uh, p- poorly against the oh, automatons. Yeah. A- a- another really dark thing in there is they're trying to hold. So the title of the episode, "Deep Breath," comes from the fact that if you hold your breath, if you take a really deep breath and can hold it for a long time, you can pass as one of the droids because they don't breathe, mm-hmm. and somehow they're very aware of if people are breathing around them. Yeah. And if you don't breathe, they'll think you're one of them and ignore you. And so in the fight scene with uh, the horde of vicious robots, the Paternoster gang and Clara are trying to hold their breaths because otherwise they're going to lose. I mean, mm-hmm. they're like totally, totally surrounded. And and so they're going to lose and they're holding their breaths and really trying hard. And it's becoming harder and harder. And Strax who has, I guess, the littlest lungs, although you would expect they would be very efficient in extracting oxygen, starts to get to the edge of his limits. And as he's hold, as he realizes he's about to lose his ability to hold his breath, he takes his rifle and points it at his own head and is ready to commit suicide on camera mm. in front of us in the happy post-regeneration romp episode. <laughs> yeah, that's dark. That is very dark. Um, you know, speaking of Strax, I do want to mention, I forgot to mention earlier, is uh, he does this physical exam of Clara, another one of these extended sequences that I'm not sure what the, it's it just sort of wasting time. But 
he does. Ca- he's he's about to tell her exactly how long she li- will live, and then she stops him. Which, yep, given yep. her ultimate fate, is an interesting. I I'm gonna guess him off. It didn't have that planned out all in advance, but it, it is interesting that he stop that they stop her. You know, or oh, him at that point. Of course, that allows for however long she wants to stay on the show. Yeah, exactly. Well, and it's it was going to be a biological estimate anyway. Of like you'll live to be ninety five or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, so doesn't, doesn't account for getting yanked out of time and <laughs> things like that. Right. So then we 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 we've resolved the the robot problem. They're back in the TARDIS. It's redecorated. Which I, I this oh uh, before that yep. though. The doctor just leaves with the TARDIS. Oh yeah, and and Clara is convinced she's stuck in mm-hmm. Victorian era London. That he's just abandoned her, and she's at the point of asking Madame Vastra if she can join the Paternoster gang because she's got nothing else to do in the nineteenth century. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, this is again dark. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, where we have a companion. Now, we know she's not going to really be abandoned, but you're showing us her thinking she's being abandoned. Yeah. And and it, that could make sense in the context of a larger thing, and you then have a happy reunion with the doctor. And it's like, of course I wasn't going to leave you. I was just taking the TARDIS to fix it or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we don't get a happy reunion. <laughs> We right. get her being so put out with the doctor, she's ready to leave. Right. Uh, by the way, being left in the 19th century, maybe she could got could have gone and got her old job back at being the nanny from the snowman. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that would have been weird for them. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yeah, so they, they end up on the TARDIS, and the, there's this whole, you know, he tells her, I'm not your boyfriend. And she gets offended. I, well, I, I, I never said you were. I never thought you were my boyfriend. But, of course... You know, we're talking to himself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then convincing himself he's not your boyfriend. Right. Right. Uh, Then they wonder about the woman in the shop who gave her the phone number for the TARDIS in the first place. You know, the the computer helpline. And uh, so we're hinting at Missy here. Uh, Then we have them land in apparently Glasgow in 2014. And. The, she gets a call from the, you know, the unexpected call from the Matt Smith doctor, the 11th doctor, who, you know, convinces her he it's this he's the same person. It's the same that, you know, the, the new doctor is the same as the same person as the old doctor and helps her overcome her reticence and see him for who she is. And so um, and then she gives him a hug and he says, I don't think I'm a hugging person now, which I think is was funny. Mm-hmm. Um, Which she then yeah. says, I don't think you get a vote. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, and then we we end here. They're going to go get coffee. And then we switch to the garden with Missy and the half-faced man telling him, you know, you made it to the uh, the paradise. Hope my boyfriend wasn't too mean to you. And uh, I remember talking to you when we talked about this in that first episode, how we were like, who is Missy? And Jimmy, of course, you were, you called it that it was. Uh, the master in, in a female regeneration. Um, oh, did I? Okay, I think you did. I, mm-hmm. I, I didn't go back and listen, but my memory maybe, maybe is... not. Maybe not right off the bat, but I, I think you were fairly early, like within a couple episodes. Yeah, kind of figured I think it we, out. We speculated so that Missy sounds a lot like Mistress, which would sound like the female form of Master. Mm-hmm. And I think we were there was some early speculation, which you know, and in, in I know in that because I did hear a little. A tiny bit of that first episode, and and there was a discussion of is Missy the master in it, right? Right. right. So um, that was a. Lo- I remember that being a lot of fun to like speculating mm-hmm. there about about her, uh, and uh, again Michelle um, Gomez Gomez is yep. fantastic, and she's probably the. I think she's the best thing to come out of the Twelfth Doctor's era, frankly, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. overall, because she was so so great. Um, so any uh, any last and, thoughts? And, oh. and so it's appropriate we used her in the record scratch bit um, yep. in this episode. For people who may not know where that's from, that's from the Big Finish boxed set Missy Volume One. It's from the episode. I, I I think it's called the 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 story within the set. I think it's called the Broken Clock, if I remember right. But it's a um, it's it's about a it's a hilarious send up of 
of crime documentaries uh, because Missy becomes involved as um, Sergeant or D.I. Missy Masterson of Scotland Yard in England uh, <laughs> as as a uh, as a participant in the t- in the bad TV police drama Dick Zodiac's Most Impossible Murders, <laughs> nice. and it's well worth listening to. Excellent. So, Father Corey, any last thoughts on this episode? Uh, one thing you mentioned, just you're about to mention briefly, but you you jumped is that we do get the new interior of the TARDIS. Um, oh, sure. And we, get, yep. and we get Clara giving the famous line, "You've redecorated. I don't like it." And of course, <laughs> yeah. you know, as I've said before, I disagree with her. I think this is of the new Who interiors. This is the best. Yeah. And we get the and the Doctor even talks about there 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 were more round things. I I, I put them away. Or I, I can't it's something like I can't find them or they got misplaced. Yeah. There, must there be were storage. more round things. You know. <laughs> yeah. Jimmy? So a few points. Um one thing that happened again, and this tends to happen at the end of Stephen Moffat seasons, is he will build up to a stinger at the very end of the finale. And in the dialogue, and then he will bail on that, mm. and we will get no closure on what the stinger was. Mm. Um, like you see that at the end of the very first Matt Smith season, where Amy and Rory have just gotten married, and then they're on the TARDIS, and the doctor gets a phone call that apparently involves Queen Nefertiti and some horrible monster being unleashed at a prayer meeting. And then they're zooming off to deal with that at the end of the first Matt Smith season. We come back. Oh, yeah, we don't see that adventure at all. Right. Yep. And it's and then here we ha- end the pre into the previous Matt Smith, se- Matt Smith season where he regenerates into Peter Capaldi. Peter Capaldi is newly regenerated and doesn't like the color of his kidneys and and then turns to Clara as the TARDIS is going out of control and says, do you know how to fly this thing? Mm hmm. Right. And the, okay, there's our cliffhanger. We're going to cut right back in on this point and see what happens next. And we don't. Yep. It's obviously, time has passed. They've been to the dinosaur times and back and stuff like that. I I think this is an abuse of the cliffhanger. Mm. You know, you if you're going to set us up with a genuine cliffhanger, you need to pay that off. But that's a minor point. We also have new opening credits in this, mm-hmm. which I... Well, I like credit sequences that take us through the time vortex. I also think this is a fresh new, you know, okay thing with the clocks circling around, you know, so I like that. Uh, The doctor had some good lines, like at one point when he's, when they've just gotten him back to the Paternoster gang's place, they're trying to put him to bed and he doesn't understand the point of a bedroom. It has only a bed in it. (laughs) <laughs> and and he's going on about that and he and as a throwaway line in the middle he says don't look in that mirror it's absolutely furious <laughs> yeah. and and that was a great line yeah. i liked that um i did not like it when he began insulting humans generically referring to earth as planet of the pudding brains mm-hmm. and this is something that peter capaldi's doctor will do um, he will insult humans much more than previous doctors had and admire them much less. Previous doctors, uh, I mean, Tom Baker could get away with making a comment like that, but it would be mixed in with, oh, humans are so marvelous. They're so wonderful. And so it didn't feel like Tom Baker was anti-human, but this doctor runs the risk of coming across that way. Mm-hmm. There's a nice bit of logic at one point where they don't know where the doctor is after he's escaped. And so they haul the TARDIS to the uh to the Paternoster gang's place and Strax is overseeing it being unloaded and he's talking to Clara and he explains the logic. He will always come for his box, lured from the dangers of London to this place of safety. And we will melt him with acid. (laughs) And Clara Clara just looks at him and says, and we will not melt him with acid. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's, is that the London Times? Yes, shall I send it up? Yes, please. And he flings it at her and hits her in the face. (laughs) Knocks her out. (laughs) I love a good bit of physical humor. (laughs) Uh, I don't like the there is no promised land stuff in Mm. this. This is Stephen Moffat's atheistic post-modern viewpoint creeping into family television. 
It is nice, though, that he then seemingly subverts that immediately by taking us to what appears to be heaven. Mm. I don't like the way the in, the doctor is portrayed as horribly insecure throughout all this, like he needs Clara to validate him. Mm-hmm. I understand the doctor having moments of vulnerability, but the Matt Smith phone call at the end makes it sound like the doctor is way more insecure than we have evidence for. Right. right. And those are my thoughts. Cool. So uh, you mentioned the new title sequence, and mm-hmm. um, I had to look this up because I, I thought it was, it was the case. Um, where a, a YouTube uh, video yes. designer named Billy Hanshaw mm-hmm. uh, had created this before, and, and I don't, I think it was a little before the regeneration, as kind of a proposal, you know, and it got picked up. Stephen Moffat saw it on YouTube, liked it, and hired him to come in and to do it professionally. He was a professional <laughs> video editor or you know a, a mm-hmm. graphic designer to begin with, but hired him to come on and to to do it professionally as the opening sequence. Yeah, that. and Moffat said rightly, I think this is the most creative thing anybody's done with Doctor Who's opening image, opening credits in 50 years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That reminds me of the uh, guy who, on YouTube, when the, the Mandalorian Season 2 ended, redid the CGI of young Luke. And so they mm-hmm. hired him for mm. later. I don't want to spoil anything, but mm-hmm. they hired him to come in and yeah. do it professionally at, uh, at ILM. That's cool. Yeah, that is really cool. All right. Uh, so I think... That should do it for our discussion of deep breath. Uh, I, we do have a bit of listener feedback. I, I, I'm going to oh, spring, do we? I'm going to spring it on you. I'm sorry, but uh, mm-hmm. it, it's it's uh, pretty straightforward. A uh, couple of nice little notes uh, on our episode on Ghostlight 266. Ted Coville on, wrote on Facebook said, "Thanks, Dom. I thought I was the only one who was totally confused by this serial. No, Ted, <laughs> you were not. I was too. And then on 267, the Crimson Horror." Uh, Kelly Brown writes, uh, I don't remember very much about this episode, but I do remember the scene when the villain's daughter finds out that she was not going to be part of her mother's promised land. Her desperate tears in contrast to her mother's smug coldness was absolutely heartbreaking. I agree, Kelly. That was uh, that was very affecting. Um, and yeah, that's interesting use of promised land again a few episodes mm-hmm. ago. Oh, yeah. So that does it for our feedback. We'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Patrick C., Heidi M., Helen O., Michael S., and Eric R. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. We'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So that's it from us. We'd love to hear what you think of Deep Breath, this 12th Doctor premiere. You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page or send an email to Who at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the first Doctor story, The Space Museum. Until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me and sharing The Secrets of Doctor Who. Thanks, Tom. Father Cory Stika, thank you as well. Thank you, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And... Sorry, but I had to stop this right now. This is just terrible. Do we have to tell the story this way?